your Bibles at this time to Revelation chapter 2. And if you need a Bible tonight, just uh, lift up your hand and the ushers. Okay, Stu. Revelation chapter 2, we'll take on the second of seven churches tonight, the letter to the church at Smyrna. Now, if the letter to the church in Ephesus is addressed to more or less the zealous church, then the letter to the church at Smyrna is addressed to the suffering church. There are only a few things that I know of that can communicate across the boundaries and barriers of language. Things like music and art and nature. There's a message that can be communicated with those mediums that can go beyond the boundaries that language presents. You know, as we couldn't understand each other perhaps with our words, but there are certain things that can communicate even across that barrier. Now, another thing that is universal, a language, if you would, that is universal, that is that it's understood by every person and every culture at every time, is the language of pain. We're all familiar to some degree with that language. We know what it feels like. We certainly know what it sounds like. And though we don't like to hear its message, it certainly does speak loud and clear, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts to us in our pain. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a dead world. Pain, although a cruel and uncomfortable word or language, it's a necessary teacher at times. There are things that we can learn by observation. There's other things that we can learn through study or schooling. But there are certain things that we can only learn through pain. My son Rocky got his first taste of this lesson. You know, it's a common quotation for parents to tell their young children, do not put your fingers in those holes. Yet it's a very tempting thing for a child of that size to see how well they fit and not to try. Well, he wasn't trying necessarily on purpose, but he had his finger touching the, uh, you know, the metal part of the plug that gets inserted into the socket. And as he, you know, put the plug in, he felt 115. He got a taste of that, you know, and, you know, we heard the scream and did what parents do. You know, you think, oh, he fell off the bunk bed or something, you know, and he gets up there and he's holding his finger and, you know, oh, you learned the lesson, didn't you? What schooling and study wasn't able to teach you, pain certainly seared that lesson within your mind. It will never leave. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said this, I owe more to the iron and the hammer and the file than to anything else in my Lord's workshop. I sometimes question if I have learned anything except through the rod. When the schoolroom is darkened, I see the most. Now we come to the second letter of these seven letters to seven churches in which Jesus writes to a group of people that were suffering. It's a specific form of suffering that they're experiencing. It's persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we may not relate to the reason so much for their suffering, but we certainly can relate to the feeling and the purpose of suffering as we look at these words. If I could draw your attention to verse 8. Jesus speaks and he says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write... These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, 
And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things without which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. I notice right off the bat in this letter to those that are suffering that it is of the seven the shortest. Jesus says the least amount of words to this particular church that is experiencing great suffering. I think this is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, it seems like, and you know, based on what we see in Scripture and what we experience in this crucible that we all must pass through from time to time, that in order for pain to do its work within our lives, it has to be somewhat without comfort. You can imagine that if you were a part of this church and that there was a message that was coming from Christ, who who knows by experience the things that you're feeling and the things that you're suffering, that there's going to be a great number of words that will bring a deep peace and deep comfort to these people. But yet it's the least worded letter of them all. And he seems to not say very much at all other than a simple acknowledging of the fact that they are suffering and that he's aware of it. But pain has a particular purpose within our lives, and seasons of suffering are designed by God to produce fruit that nothing else can quite accomplish within us. And in order for that pain to do its work, it must be oftentimes without comfort. And that's why God will allow us to get into things that seemingly have no solution. Because if we can see the solution at the end of the situation, then to us that's just a comfort and we just bide our time. But it lacks in allowing that suffering to do its work within us. So it's the shortest of these letters. It's amazing. Personally, I seem to experience that it's in the times when things seem the worst that God seems to be ominously silent. Does anybody relate to that? It seems like it's those times that he says the least to us. Another reason why I I think that perhaps this letter to the suffering church is the shortest is that many times when someone is suffering, there just isn't a whole lot to say. We're all familiar with the account of that man, I'm going to say it, that three-letter word, Job. The picture of suffering as we read through the scriptures and see what this man endured and went through beyond anything probably that any of us have ever experienced. And he had these three wonderful friends that came to comfort him and help him in his time of distress. And they basically laid it on him that he was a wretched, filthy sinner and that he was under the punishment and condemnation of God and that he was just getting what he had coming to. They were great counselors bringing much comfort to this man, Job. And Job, after hearing all 40 chapters of their comfort and their wisdom and their solid, you know, nice, peaceful things that they're seeking to bring, he looks at them and he says, miserable counselors are ye. Miserable counselors are ye. Because the fact of the matter is, when you're going through it, when you're Job or you're in that crucible or that season of suffering, there just isn't a whole lot that people can say that even will comfort you. And that's by the perfect design of God, as we'll see. But here this church, Smyrna, they're suffering. It's the shortest of these letters. Well, what was the situation there? Who, who was this group of people? What was going on in Smyrna? Well, again, in verse 8, it says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right. Smyrna was another one of those cities there in Asia Minor. 35 miles north of Ephesus, the city that we studied in our time last that we were together. It was a prosperous city, a natural harbor. The chief export of the city of Smyrna was the you know, the, the, what's that called? The herb, myrrh. This 
resin that was crushed and, you know, the bark from a balsam tree that would be crushed and this oil would be extracted and the scent of it was quite precious and quite valuable. It was used as an embalming fluid. It was used as perfume. It was used for many things, but it was extremely expensive and it was extremely uh, abundant in the city of Smyrna from which the city got its name. They were called Smyrna because of their, their, their supplies of this myrrh. It's interesting that the suffering church existed in a city that produced this myrrh And it's interesting that this myrrh could only be extracted by this process of crushing this tree bark with extreme pressure. And that it was the pressure that was placed upon it that brought forth the sweet smell. The suffering church that Jesus is writing to is suffering because it's being crushed. And yet, because they're being crushed, they're giving off a beautiful aroma in their suffering because they're faithful to God. It's also interesting that this is one of only two churches of these seven that there's nothing negative that Jesus observes about their behavior. He has no correction for them. There's nothing that he looks in and he says, well, you need to make this adjustment. Isn't it amazing the purifying effect that suffering can have upon the lives of God's people? Smyrna was known in the region. It was called the lovely one. Because of their prosperity and their wealth and their cultural affluence. It was called the flower of Asia. Homer, the philosopher, was born there. Alexander the Great rebuilt the city that it might be, quote, the model city for everyone in that area to marvel at. It was also a city of incredible idolatry. And it set the stage, that idolatry, for the persecution that the church would suffer. Well, in this divine salutation now that Jesus gives to them, he says, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. If I can remind you that in each of these letters, there is, you know, this outline, if you would, this format that Jesus follows as he addresses these churches. There's a divine salutation where Jesus addresses them using some description that was given to us back in chapter 1, when John saw Jesus in glory. And to the church in Smyrna, through this divine salutation that he's giving them, he calls himself the first and the last, the one which was dead and is alive. By addressing them in this way, by saying to them, listen, I'm the first and the last, he's saying something to them. He's saying, listen, church, listen, suffering Christian, understand that I am the sovereign one, that I was there at the beginning and I'm there at the end and that I see everything in between and that my hand is ordaining and moving and orchestrating all of it, that I'm sovereign, that I have power and that I have experience throughout all of it, beginning, middle and last. He also tells them that he's the one that was dead And yet is alive. Because in the midst of the persecution that they're suffering there in Smyrna. The great threat and the great danger that they were facing was martyrdom and physical beating and suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus is saying that your greatest fear has been overcome and conquered. Because I have swallowed up death and victory. I was dead, but I am yet alive. As if to look at them and say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes on me will never die. And those in and of themselves are great words of comfort as Jesus addresses this church, showing them that he's familiar with where they're at. He knows where they are and he knows where they're going. He is the Lord who walks in the midst of that candlestick and he knows them by name. Well, then he gives them the second part of this divine uh, outline or divine format in these letters, if you would, and that is the positive affirmation. Look with me at verse 9. He says to them, first of all, I know thy works. Now he says this to every church. To all seven of the churches, he says to them, I know thy works. 
And thus, it becomes more to us, more than, than an act of the works in and of themselves that they were doing, which they were doing. Obviously, if there is a church alive at all, there's some works that are going forth. But in that he says this to all seven churches, it's, it's, it means or implies to be familiar with, to have examined. That he's saying, I know what you're doing. That after looking in and examining where you are and where you've been and what you're going through, I know your works. I've examined you. And here's what follows of my examination. And he goes on to say, I know your works and your tribulation." The very first thing that he reports is he says to them, what I see, he says, I see your tribulation. It's a word in the Greek, the word is philipsis, and it means literally to be crushed. He says, I know your stress. The picture is of a heavy stone that is set upon wheat, that by the pressure of it rolling over it, the wheat is crushed and it's divided from the chaff. That by the pressure and stress, the wheat would be ground. Or of a stone that you can picture squeezing grapes and squeezing out the juice from these grapes as the millstone would be rolled over this you know, harvest of fruit that was there so as to extract that which was precious and valuable. He says, I know your philipsis or I know your stress. And of course, it was due to the tremendous persecution they were facing. The city of Smyrna was inundated with shrines and temples to false gods. There was one major street that ran through the city. It started at the port of Ephesus, and it ran all the way through town, all the way up to the Acropolis that was on Mount Pagos. It was called the Golden Street. And it was dotted with temples to Asclepius and Aphrodite and Apollo and Zeus, all sorts of gods and goddesses. Every kind of deity and superstition that you can imagine was there prevalent in the city of Smyrna. And because of this great plurality of gods, the pantheon, as they called it, it made it so that Christians stood out quite a bit. They were exclusive, because they served only one God. And it was uncultural, it was unheard of that anyone would just serve one God. But it isn't just that they only served one God. They served one God exclusively to the denying and forsaking of all of the others, calling them false. It isn't just that they embraced the one and were tolerant towards the others. But they embraced the one, and they were intolerant of the others. They were idols. They were dead. They were an affront. They were an offense. And they were in contrast to the God of heaven. And this attitude that they rightly had there in that church, in that time, got them into a lot of trouble. Also in Smyrna... The Christians found themselves in the center of a city that practiced emperor worship. In the Roman Empire, they deified the Caesar, the emperor, the one who was, and they worshipped him as a god. And so devoted was the city of Smyrna to this emperor worship that when a city in in the Roman Empire was to be selected to actually build a temple in honor of emperor worship, it was Smyrna that was chosen. That's where the temple to worship the Caesar was. And at certain times, in certain seasons, the citizens would be required to kind of bend the knee or genuflect, if you would, and utter the words, Caesar is Lord. And this put the Christians in that region and really throughout the whole Roman Empire at times in a great perplexity, a great dilemma. Because to not concede and bend the knee and utter the words that Caesar is Lord was to, in a sense, seal their own tribulation, persecution, or even martyrdom as they could be physically punished and killed for not giving obliging to those customs. And it roused the wrath of the rulers that the Christians in Smyrna refused to bow the knee or utter the words that Caesar is Lord's. And this brought the persecution upon these Christians to a much greater level. It was no longer just name-calling and tormenting or slander or profiling them, segregating them into kind of a certain class of people like we experience maybe to a small degree in our country. 
But now it brought it to the point where it was physical cruelty and martyrdom. The pastor of the church at Smyrna, historically speaking, was a man named Polycarp. Church tradition and church history tells us that Polycarp was the last living man that was discipled personally by the Apostle John. That he had a link with an apostle. And this man Polycarp, a holy man, the pastor of this church that was in great persecution. When the persecution was mounting up, they set him up and they brought it to a certain point where Polycarp was required to bow the knee and utter the words that Caesar is Lord. And of course, Polycarp didn't give in. He didn't obey. He rebelled against the command. And being a man that was somewhat highly esteemed for his his, you know, faith in Christ and his holiness and the stand that he made, the soldiers implored him to just say the words. They said, you don't even have to mean it. Just say the words, Caesar's Lord. You can go and recant later, but you've got to just say the words. And Polycarp responded to those soldiers and he said, these 80 and 6 years, my Lord Jesus Christ has been faithful to me. So who am I to deny him now? And they implored him and said, they'll burn you, Polycarp, if you don't say the words. And he said, then gladly I will go to the stake for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what they did. They took Polycarp and they built the fire underneath the pier and they put him upon it. And they lit the fire. And as he began to sing praises out to the Lord, the flames of the fire, traditionally speaking, didn't come near him. The historical record is that the flames kept off of Polycarp. And as he sang louder and louder, so incensed and filled with rage was one of these soldiers that he threw a spear that pierced the side of Polycarp. And as his blood spilled out, tradition tells us that the flames were quenched through the flow of his blood that came. And he died that day, but he sealed his testimony, his martyrdom, and his faith in Christ and left a lasting witness and impression in the eyes and minds of all those that saw him to the faithfulness and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the joy of the Lord in the midst of great suffering. Well, that was the atmosphere in Smyrna. It was one that was extremely hostile. And for someone to become a Christian in the city of Smyrna, they knew that it was going to cost them something. That perhaps it would even cost them their life if they were to give themselves and their allegiance to this Jesus that they were seeing and hearing so much about. But Jesus looks at this church that was going through this incredible suffering and he says the words, I know. He says, I know. And it isn't a word that simply implies that he acknowledges it from a viewpoint or a standpoint, but it's a word that it implies that he knows by experience. When he says, I know, he's not just saying, oh, I know about it. I got a memo that passed my desk. Oh, there's something going on. I got to take care of this. No, he's saying, I know because I've been there. I know what you're going through because I have experienced it myself. The deepest form of relationship that can ever be enjoined upon, whether it be between man and man, and I mean, you know, male and female or male, you know, just between man and man this way or between man and God this way, the deepest form of relationship is a relationship that's bonded in suffering. We have fellowship with people over many different, you know, scales and depths and all kinds of different things. We have recreational fellowship, people that we, you know, play racquetball with or people that we golf with or hang out with or work with. People that, uh, you know, are neighbors and we live by them or, you know, people that maybe frequent the same types of places or have the same hobbies or maybe we grew up together. There's all kinds of different types of relationships that we can have. But the deepest bond that can happen between people is when they've suffered together. When you see war buddies that still, when they look at each other 30 years after the war is over and they fought in the trench back to back and defended each other's lives and felt together the fear that they might not make it out of this one, there's a bond that is sealed in those types of situations that's deeper than any form of fellowship you can have. When a man and a woman make it through the battle years of marriage, 
when they look across at each other, when they're gray and wrinkly and they see in the face of the person that they fought through everything with for all of those years, there's a bond there as they look across and see in their eyes the person that they suffered with for all of those years. It's a deep bond that goes so much deeper and further than anything casual can ever produce when they look across in that way. When two moms that have lost a child see each other from across the room and only they know what it feels like to go through something like that. There's a bond that's formed in that fellowship that's deep. And there's something that happens when we suffer because of our faith in Christ, whether it's because of persecution or whether it's simply just affliction from any source that God allows within our lives. When we hear the words of Jesus as he looks at us in that situation and he says, I know. And we realize somewhere inside that we're not on foreign ground, that there's been someone who's been where we are before, that's gone through the things that we're going through before. And we see him hanging there upon that cross. And we understand the affliction that he endured on our behalf. There's a bond that grows between us and our God that's deeper than simply the casual Christianity of church attendance can produce. And Jesus looks at this church and he says, I know by experience. I've been down the road that you're on. I've gone through the things that you're going through. I've felt the pain that you're feeling. Many times when we suffer, we want God to lift it away. We beg him and we say, God, end this trial, end this season, end this situation, get me out of it. But it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul had a very different perspective when it came to the subject of suffering. In his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, or chapter 3 rather, verse 7 and onward, he says these words. He says, but whatever things were gained to me before... Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now listen to verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Do you see that there, church? Paul said, I count everything in this life a loss. I count it as dung, as rubbish, as refuse so that I might win Christ in order that I might know Him that I might know the power of his resurrection and that I might experience the fellowship of his suffering. The bond that is forged in the crucible of pain. I embrace it, said Paul, because I know what it's producing within my life. It's producing a knowledge of God that the shallow channels of Christianity will never produce within me. And Paul said, that is the thing that I want above all else. And I would happily give and trade everything I could ever earn or have in order that I might have that one thing. Because listen, there is nothing greater than to know the true and the living God. Jesus doesn't look at the church in Smyrna and say, okay, I'm working on it. I know your tribulation and I'm working on it. Don't worry, I'm going to get you out of this one. He doesn't look at them and say, well, this is because... Of all of the times you turned and rebelled against me in your heart. And now you're going to pay for it. And we'll see if you ever turn from me again. He doesn't say any of that. He just simply looks at them and he says, I know. I know the things that you're going through. I know your tribulation. I know your stress. And then he says, and your poverty. I know your poverty. Not only are you suffering this great tribulation, but you're also suffering because of poverty. Historically, Smyrna is also known as a place where trade guilds were very prominent, much like our labor unions that we have today, where people of like craft would get together in sort of organized, semi-organized fashion, and, and they would kind of control the destiny of their particular and specific trades. However, because of the great superstitious and religious beliefs that they carried, 
Many of these various guilds also had gods that were attached to them, a particular form of worship that coincided with the trade that they would have. And so for this reason, once it was discovered that you were a Christian and that you didn't give allegiance to the god or the deity that supposedly oversaw or blessed the trade, then you were seen as kind of taboo and that you would not be able to come by work. Work would be hard to come by because of your Christianity. And this led to the Christians in that city being somewhat impoverished. But from God's perspective, isn't it interesting? He says, I know your poverty, but Jesus says, but you are rich. The Bible says that the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination unto God. And the Bible talks over and over again about those that are poor in this world's eyes, but yet are rich towards God. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you are rich. And there was a poverty physically, but it led to a rich spirituality that will be that will yield great dividends in eternity but he goes on and he says i also know the blasphemy of them which say they are jews and are not but are of the synagogue of satan he says i know the blasphemy of them that say they are jews but they are not but rather they are of the synagogue of satan now blasphemy theologically, by definition, is really a breaking of the third commandment. That you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, perhaps you, like me, growing up, you thought that that meant you couldn't swear and use God's name in the same conjunction. You know, you couldn't say words that put God's name in in a bad light. And if you did that, you were taking the name of the Lord in vain. But do you know that That's not really what it means. Now, I know some of you are going, yes, that just acquits me of a whole bunch of sin. You know, no, no, no. You still don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to put God's name in that sense. But but really, if you want to get technical, you know, theological, that's not what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. To take the name of the Lord in vain. Well, vain means empty vanity. It's wind. It's vapor. It's nothing to use it as nothing. So if you're taking the name of the Lord, that is, if you're calling yourself by the name of the Lord, you're taking his name. I am a Christian. You're taking his name upon yourself. I am born again. I follow Jesus Christ. You're taking his name, but yet you're taking it in vain, meaning that there's no substance behind your confession. You're saying it, you're calling yourself something, but in reality, your life does not line up with what you're saying. There's no weight behind it. It is vain, it's empty, it's nothing. Then you are guilty of blasphemy. You are taking the name of the Lord in vain. And certainly, when Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, he's talking about those that perhaps are taking his name ascribing to the worship of Jehovah or God, those that are attending the church services there in Smyrna or doing obeisance to the God of heaven according to that which the Christians have prescribed. But yet at the same time, they've taken his name in vain. They have no problem still by with the pantheon. Well, yeah, we cover that base. We go to church on Sunday and we go listen to Pastor Polycarp as he gives us his exhortation and encourages us in the midst of poverty and suffering because we like it. We like going to church and we want to have our sins forgiven. But we also got to eat. And eating means that we bow the knee to Apollo on Monday morning. It means that we have to do obeisance to Zeus or say the words, Caesar is Lord. Well, it's no big deal because, well, God knows my heart. But Jesus looks on and he sees something totally different. You're taking my name, but yet you're taking it in vain. You're not counting the cost. You're not plowing the field. They'll go to church and sing and worship on Sunday, but they'll bow down to King Budweiser after work on Monday. They want to be saved and forgiven But then they would also seek after the world's wealth, the world's power, and the world's pleasures, so as only not to be persecuted by the world. Well, you know, we got to be wise about this. These are people who are Christians in name only. They say they are Jews, Jesus said, but yet they refuse to stand out. 
They wouldn't renounce the false gods that were worshipped in Smyrna. They wouldn't repent of sin. They wouldn't walk the narrow way. They wouldn't forsake the world. They wouldn't take up their cross and follow Christ. And Jesus said that when he looks at that, he doesn't see someone who's sincerely saved, but rather he sees someone who's attending the synagogue of Satan. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. That he doesn't appear in the form of great wickedness, but rather he comes as though he's shining. He comes as though he's righteous. He comes as though he's light. He looks 90% true, but it's 10% false, just enough to insert the poison and to be 100% deadly. Now, this is not an indictment upon the church because Jesus isn't talking to the people that were true Christians within it. He was simply acknowledging the fact that it existed in their ranks and that it was something that weakened them and actually was to their harm. It's interesting that the same thing happens in church today, doesn't it? There's people that will call themselves Christians that have a form of Christianity. And they'll go to church and they'll give their offering and they'll say certain words and they'll acknowledge God or acknowledge truth. But they give their devotion and their hearts and their lives to the gods of this world. They seek after pleasure and they chase it, love it. They seek after the world's power and authority and they want to grab a hold of it and taste of it and experience it. They live for wealth and to build a kingdom here on earth. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes and he says that all that is in the world, listen, all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts, but he that does the will of God will abide forever. And there is a stark contrast between the ideals that God has in the worship of Him and the ideals that the world promises and presents in the worship of them. And the two things cannot coexist at the same time. If you live for Christ, He says that the way is narrow and the gate is straight. But He says if you follow the world, the, wide, the gate is wide and the, broad, the way is broad. And there's many that follow in. And you cannot be on both paths at the same time. And to seek to try to live for the world during the week so as to survive and then to live for Christ at other times, the Bible calls that blasphemy. It's to take the name of the Lord in vain. It's to walk in a way that brings shame and contempt upon the name of Christ. And there were those there in the city of Smyrna whose allegiance was divided. And as long as a person lives like this, whether it was in Smyrna then or whether it's in our society now, if you live in that way, you will never taste of persecution for your faith. Because there's nothing wrong with it at all if everything is in moderation. In moderation, if you want to serve Christ and go to church and do your thing, fine. But let's not get too serious about it. And as long as we know how to play the card so as that we're not too serious, we're not fanatic or just as they... The person who talks about Christ while they're sitting smoking a cigar and taking shots of vodka over a game of poker will never be persecuted for their faith. They might be disagreed with in the theme of conversation, but they will never experience persecution or rejection. Because although they profess Christ, they're bending the knee to a totally different God in the presence of those that watch. The person who forsakes all to follow Christ. The person who forsakes a scholarship to an ungodly school because they feel a call to serve in the mission field. That person is going to be persecuted for their faith. They're throwing away a perfectly good opportunity. They're wasting their life on religion, on something of no substance that can't be seen. A person who separates himself or herself from a group of friends that's going in an ungodly direction and says, I would rather sit alone at home on a Friday night than to go in a place where my morality will be tested and perhaps compromised. That person will be persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. A person who gives the majority and bulk of their energy in meditation to the things of God and the effort of their mouth and the words that they speak unto the things of God, that person is going to be persecuted by men. And there are those that trust in Christ 
as their sufficiency and for their provision and as their stability, who with their whole lives they believe in His Word and they forsake the world and they don't walk in the ways of the world and they will experience persecution. And there is some persecution that comes in the form of men outwardly as they will persecute you, family members, parents, siblings, you know, people that will, will lay it on you thick because of the way that you're going in the things of God. But then there's a whole other form of persecution when you live that way that comes so invisibly and so silently, almost as though it's from Satan himself as he aligns his minions up with their arrows in the thoughts that constantly penetrate and pierce your heart. The anxiousness that can overwhelm you or the depression that can come upon you and afflict you because of your refusal to do things the world's way and because you choose to trust in the Lord. Persecution comes from men. Persecution comes from Satan. But what comfort and counsel does Christ give to those that are suffering? In verse 10, he addresses them. He gives them counsel. And he says, first of all, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. To the Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 8, verse 18, he said, for I reckon or account it that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you understand what the apostle is saying? Is that if you were to take and in one list enumerate all of your sufferings, and if it were possible on the other side to enumerate all of the glory that's coming in the world to that is yet to be because of what Christ has purchased on our behalf, you cannot even compare the two things. That the weight of glory that will be revealed so far outweighs any light affliction that we are experiencing now that the two things can't be put in the same sentence on the same par. They're in two totally different dimensions. They can't be the same as the, the one the other. To the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17, Paul writes again and he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more you know, weighty and eternal weight of glory. He says our affliction, our light affliction. You say, well, my affliction isn't light. Listen, I'm telling you right now, whatever you're going through here tonight, you did not and are not going through what Paul went through. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 12, and 13 and read the things that he went through there. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he talks about being distressed so much so that it was to the point of even death. That the suicidal tendencies that were even upon the man, the Apostle Paul, that he's not ashamed to talk about. But yet he looks at it through the perspective of what God is doing in his life. And he says that we trust in the middle of that distress and in the middle of that suffering that he who has delivered us will deliver us. And not only will he deliver us now, but he'll deliver us when it happens in the future as well. And in that context, he looked at that church and he says, our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working within us a far more eternal weight of glory. Because he understood that the suffering that we endure uh, temporarily here cannot compare with the glory that will be revealed permanently in us in the ages to come. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, our Lord says to us, fear not them that can kill the body, but afterwards have no power. But fear him rather, that after the body is dead, has power to cast the soul into hell. But he says, fear them not. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12, the prophet, in speaking for the Lord, says, I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who art thou, that thou should be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the Son of Man, which shall be made as the grass? God looks and he says, fear not, you are in my hand and I have control over the circumstances of your life. And Jesus says to all of his own, including all of us that are sitting here right now, the last words that he spoke before he ascended, the last words he said before he left this earth, he said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. And he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
He is powerful. He is sovereign. He's with us. And he looks at this church and he says, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. And he looks at you and I here tonight. In whatever arena we're in, whether we're in the middle of a season of suffering or whether we're headed into one, he looks at us and he says, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Do not fear. You say, why? Well, why wouldn't I fear? Because I'm going to be honest, I'm afraid of suffering. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to feel the pain that this life can produce. So why does it have to happen? And why does he tell me not to fear it? Well, two things as we wrap it up. Because suffering is a part of this life. <laughs> it is. There's, there's no way around it. And it has, first of all, a purpose. Look what he says. He says, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried or tested or purified, if you would, or proven. What it means is to be purified. When a jeweler or a goldsmith would be given or would find a lump of gold or of a precious metal, he would have to test it or prove it to see its value. And then his job would be to purify it, to bring it to its greatest value. And so the method whereby this lump of gold, this precious metal would be proven or purified is that it would be placed within a crucible. And the temperature would be increased dramatically to the point where this solid, stable structure that was steady in and of itself, that was self-sufficient, that needed nothing, now begins to melt. And the stability of the substance begins to go to nothing. It is depressed in its strength, if you would, and it's brought to nothing as it becomes this molten sea within this pot as it's placed in that intensity of fire there in that flame. But as that flame does its work, as the pain of that fire works within that substance, everything in it that's impure, everything that's in it that's of no value at all begins slowly to float to the top. And as those impure substances float to the top, the heat is taken away, the suffering season ends, and the gold again begins to gel and then to solidify and to become stable again. And the master goldsmith will artfully take his blade and he will skim carefully across the top of that substance and he will take off from that everything that is impure. And that gold has become purer. But guess what? It's not pure enough yet. And so they put it back into that crucible. And the temperature is again brought up and the stability is again shrunken. And again, it's brought into this molten, painful situation. And the gold thinks to itself, why is this happening to me? Why am I in this crucible? Why am I feeling this pain? And slowly the impurities again begin to float to the top. And then it's cooled and then it's skimmed. And someone on looking says, how many times are you going to do that to that gold? How many times are you going to allow it? And that wise master goldsmith will look back at them with a smile. And he'll say, until I can see my face in it. And then I'll know it's pure enough. And the same thing is true for the master goldsmith, the Lord who knows, who holds us in his hand, who knows what he's bringing forth as he melts us down, as he allows the crucible of pain and suffering to work within our lives. He's bringing out the impurities. Why? So that he can see his face in us. So that the person and the character of Christ is formed within us. And so trials, suffering, difficulties serves a purpose within our lives. Jesus tells them upright, you're going to be tried. But not only does suffering have a purpose, thankfully, it also has a period. Look at what he says next. He says, the devil will cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation for ten days. Now, interestingly, there are many theologians and scholars that have tried to kind of pin the tail on what these 10 days are. Well, it was 10 periods of persecution that the church endured between the emperor this and the emperor of that. Okay, there might be something to that here or there. Others have said, well, this is a period of 10 years that the church experienced, the church in Smyrna from this period. Is, okay, there might be something to that. But why did Jesus say 10 days? Why didn't he say 10 years? 
Why didn't he say through ten periods or ten emperors? He said ten days. Why? Well, we don't know what those ten days are, but you know what we do know? We know that it was a specifically measured amount of time that they were going to be in that suffering season for. And that brings me great hope. Do you know, church, that when the season of suffering comes, and you may be in it right now, listen, it's not forever. Someone said one time that God keeps one hand on the thermometer and the other hand on the thermostat. And he knows exactly what the temperature is. He knows exactly what he's doing and what he's producing and what he's bringing forth, whether it be in a church or whether it be in the individual life of one of his people. He knows what he's doing and he's in absolute sovereign control over it. It is measured. It's on purpose. It has a reason and it's working in you glory and power that you'll never understand. Well, what do I do when I'm in that season? Well, Jesus tells them. He says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be faithful to Jesus. The temptation will be to pull back, to draw away from the Lord, to give your efforts and energy to something else, to look back to a time in your life before there was a season of suffering, when you were compiled with dirt and impurities, perhaps. Don't do that. Jesus said, be faithful even to the point of death. Don't let go. Don't turn back. Don't back down. And he says, I will give you a crown of life. It's interesting that suffering is coming from two sources within this church. First of all, from the outward attacks of men, the persecution that they were facing. But also it was coming from the inward attacks of Satan. Jesus said that Satan is going to test you. That there was something demonic, something invisible, something unseen, something incalculable in the things that they were suffering. But he says to be faithful. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Don't please men. Don't listen to Satan's voice, but be faithful unto death. It's amazing, isn't it, how Satan has a way of destroying our hope? He just has a way of getting in under the surface and he knows how to depress us. He knows how to bring anxiety and he knows how to strip us of our hope. Job said in Job 17, 15, when he was going through, he said, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? And isn't it interesting that when we suffer, that's the way we feel. We feel like there's no hope. There's nothing good that's ever going to come from this. It's never going to change. But suffering is a fact of the Christian life. It doesn't happen to some, it happens to all. Everybody goes through it, everybody feels it. But God gives us reasons to hope. He's in control, he has promise, he's given us his word, there's a future. The psalmist wrote Psalm 42 verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? He says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of of his countenance. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones commented on this verse in the context of the suffering. And he said, The first thing we have to learn is what the psalmist learned. We must take ourselves in hand. This man was not content just to lie down and commiserate with himself. He does something about it. He takes himself in his hand, he talks to himself. I say we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Isn't that interesting? Because I read that and I could immediately relate to it because I have a very loud self that likes to talk to me. You're never going to get out of this. You're done. You're finished. This is forever. You're an absolute failure. Look at you. You're done. Your life is over. You're facing foreclosure. You're facing bankruptcy. You're facing reproach. And you're going to have cancer. And you're dying. And, you, you know, and all of a sudden, myself just constantly likes to, to, to talk that way. But if I can grab a hold for one second of the duct tape and, you know, kind of wrap the lid on what myself wants to say, then I can begin to talk to myself. And if I begin to talk to myself, I can tell myself what the Bible says, which is more true than what myself is telling me. Because listen, all of those things that yourself tries to tell you, they're not real. 
But you're not in foreclosure. But you haven't yet missed the payment. You don't have cancer. You're not dying. You know, all all these things. No, but yes, you are. No, no, no. Listen, the Bible says that he that keeps you will never slumber or sleep. The Bible says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? The Bible says that he that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him for us all, how much will he not now freely give us all things? The Bible says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The Bible gives us all of these great and precious promises. And if we would just stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves, our despair and our anxiety would be turned into hope and elation and joy. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. Listen to this. It says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. That's the word of God. That's what the Bible says about depression. You know where it comes from? It comes from anxiety in the heart. Do you know? You say, well, well, how do I deal with anxiety then? If anxiety causes depression, listen, Jesus tells us how to deal with anxiety. You ready? He said, don't take an anxious thought. Which means when the anxious thought comes, you have permission from God to not take it. The anxious thought comes. Here comes the anxious thought. The anxious thought is the mortgage is due, the mortgage is due, the mortgage is due. Well, here comes the anxious thought. You just send it on. Say, oh, Jesus said I don't have to take this. And you let it go. I don't have to take this anxious thought. I'm going to think about something else. That he provides richly according to his riches and glory. Well, here comes the anxious thought. The anxious thought. My hip hurts. Oh, no, I'm going to need a new hip. No, don't take the anxious thought. Just No, I don't have to take it. Jesus said don't take it. Therefore, am I sinning if I take it? If he said don't take it? Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word maketh it glad. Isn't it great that we have this promise? Jesus concludes his word to this church. This good word, verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Isn't that great perspective? I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? That you die, right? If you die, you go to heaven immediately. You are ripped through with glory instantaneously and you're in the presence of the Lord. And the second death will never have any effect upon you. And if you just put things in perspective, suffering all of a sudden has a bright side, doesn't it? Interesting what Jesus says to these church. The worship team can come. I broke my New Year's resolution already. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much that, that what we're hearing is true. Lord, we grow up hearing fairy tales and romanticized stories of princes and saviors. But yet the words that we're hearing and reading here tonight are more real than the seats that we're sitting in and the floor that we're standing upon. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you're so committed to us that you're doing this great work within our lives. And though we don't understand that part of the process of bringing us from here to glory is this fact of suffering, It so comforts us, Lord, to know that you are in control. That it's only for a season. And that it's bringing out a specific end within us. And so, Lord, I pray tonight for each person here that you would give us the grace to fear none of those things that we will suffer. That we wouldn't look at life with a a, a shield up, constantly waiting for the arrow to strike but that we would live with a holy joy and boldness knowing that you are stronger. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that you would give us power, Lord, to not take that anxious thought or to not allow that venom in as Satan strikes or when that word, foul word, comes from that person. Lord, give us the strength that you ordained to this church at Smyrna. 
And in this day, Lord, when so many are suffering here and now, when there's woes and fears constantly being put towards us, I pray, Lord, that your perfect peace would surpass all of that. And that you'd give us strength to stand strong as Pastor Polycarp did. And that we would say, these however many years, my Lord Jesus has been faithful to me and I will not deny him now. So help us, Lord. And I pray for each person here that right now, Lord, you would move in their midst, that you would lay your hand upon their heart, and that you would whisper in your ear your loving kindness and your great mercy, that they would sense right now you speaking to them, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're feeling. I was in the garden And the weight was so heavy upon me there. The stress was so great. The affliction so real that blood began to burst through my capillaries. And I know the pain of the depression you're feeling. I know the pain of the stress that you're enduring. And I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you with you always, even to the end of the age. Let my work be accomplished within you. My face will be seen. My aroma will be known. And your reward will be great. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people here tonight. And as we sing this song, I pray that you would encourage our hearts that we would leave here with a radically different perspective than when we came in, according to the power of your Spirit that works within us. We ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.